0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. And today we'll be visiting with author Richard R. Roach, M.D., to discuss a book that he titled Saving Skunk. Now, Dr. Roach, good to have you on the program. Uh, what is this book about? Is this a nonfiction or a fiction?
2: Uh, this is a fictional book about uh, the Ojibwe people, and uh, most of the book takes place in the 14th century. The uh, title is actually uh, comes from a review of the census taken in the, by the Minnesota Historical Society in 1911. And one of the names of the Ojibwe in that census was Skunk. Uh, So that is what prompted the title to write a story about an Ojibwe
1: with that name. And this book is, uh, what, 175 pages or so? That's correct. And how did you come to write this book? What is your current occupation or preoccupation?
2: So my interest in writing this book was because Uh, When I was a canoe guide during my college days, uh, our boss uh, invited an uh, Ojibwe Medewin, that's the medicine society for the Ojibwe nation, or Anishinaabe as they call themselves, and he would come and tell us stories. What was uh, somewhat comical is that he told us that uh, Ojibwe stories were not supposed to be told until the first snowflake fell, but since he was a fourth level uh, Medewin himself, he gave us permission to tell the stories during the summer. Most of these stories that he told us were oral tradition, although I have had the opportunity to read a number of historical books. And have found that some of the stories are documented in other books, uh, particularly *A uh, History of the Ojibwe People* that was published in 1889. I did find scraps of some of the stories in that in that edition as well. So uh, that prompted me to put um, Ira Isham's stories into a single novel. The present day person, Heidi, who's in the novel, um, intrigued me because uh, going to uh, medical school at the University of Minnesota, we actually had quite a bit of contact with Ojibwe healers. In fact, uh, they even have a month-long rotation where medical students can work with Ojibwe healers. And I even had um, classmates that were Ojibwe. So they were trying to bring together uh, modern medicine uh, and put that into their Ojibwe culture. So that's where I got the idea to write a story about Heidi, uh, who is uh, an Ojibwe living in the Net Lake Indian Reservation, wanting to incorporate her healing skills that she learns from being a first-level uh into modern medicine because that's her aspiration to become uh, a physician.
1: And your heroine is 18 years old. Is that my understanding? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct.
2: Um, and in fact, I did meet uh, some uh, young women who Uh, were interested in their native Ojibwe culture who were aspiring to be uh, physicians and physician assistants when I was working in Cloquet, Minnesota.
1: Sounds like an interesting tale. Uh, Who does this book appeal to and why?
2: I uh, think that this book appeals uh, to anyone who's interested in um, First Nation peoples. One of the deficits I saw in the books available uh, about the Ojibwe is that there weren't any books about stories from prior to European contact. And since the stories that Ira Isham told us, he claimed all happened prior to uh, European contact, I thought that that was an important message to bring to the public so that they would they would understand that uh, before Europeans came, the Anishinaabe nation had understood about medical value of certain herbs and plants, and uh, they were able to heal wounds and also that they were fascinated with the uh, psychological aspects of healing as well. The book would appeal to Anyone who's interested in uh, medicine, comparing uh, modern medicine with First Nation uh, people's medical care, or people who are interested in the adventure of what life was like for First Nation people prior to uh, European contact.
1: How did you obtain the the stories, the documentation, the history that you also included in the backdrop of this story?
2: Yes, um, Ira Isham came and told us these stories every year prior to us uh, guiding. So uh, it was part of our orientation as canoe guides for Ira to come and spend the evening with us and tell us these stories.
1: And how long did it take to to get the process started on writing this novel?
2: I uh, felt that it was important to document some of the things that that Ira had said, and I have a bibliography of uh, 20 or 30 books that I read in the process of preparing for this novel. It took me well over 10 years to get all the data together.
1: And how would you introduce this to someone who perhaps is not familiar with your background, your history, your work? and introduce the contents of this book.
2: I would introduce this book as a a story about a young woman who wants to pull together her her modern understanding of science with her uh, history and heritage of being an Anishinaabe young woman.
1: Are there any other characters that add credence to her quest?
2: She uh, starts the initiation process which I was able to find uh, references from books that were published before the 1800s on what that initiation was like. And so she becomes an Anishinaabe Medeowin, first level. During the process, uh, she finds out about her heritage, that there were women healers that went back to the 14th century and that were very important in psychological as well as uh, medical healing.
1: Would you call this novel a psychological thriller, or is it informational and historical novel?
2: I would say this is an adventure thriller. Uh, When the 14th century portion of the book opens, we find that Bossy, Uh, the uh, ancestor of Heidi husband is shot with a tomahawk in his back and uh, becomes uh, infected and she has to save her husband's life because of her medical skills then they still have to harvest their wild rice and prepare it for winter one of the prominent aspects of the book is the role that wild rice plays for um, Anishinaabe people, without wild rice, they literally would not have survived the winter. So uh, this aspect of the story is, is historical. The modern part about Heidi wanting to uh, do something for her people and and become a healer is predicated on her own father having problems with alcohol abuse, and he ends up dying. She doesn't actually know until the end of the book why he died, and that uh, uh, adds a bit of a murder mystery to the book as well.
1: Now, because this book took 10 years, I'm presuming that this was your first novel.
2: Uh, Actually, I have written six novels, but this is the first one published. And in fact, Heidi uh, is a character in uh, three of my other novels that are unpublished.
1: Well, perhaps those will get picked up and and also published. That would be exciting. Mm -hmm. Maybe have a whole series on something similar to what you've written today. Right. In this novel, if it gets picked up, say, by a uh, movie production company, if there was a scene that really stands out to you as the writer, what would that be?
2: Oh the scene that would really stand out would be when Bassi's husband and son are kidnapped and she travels uh to the destroyer's village and confronts the chief that she wants her husband and son released. That's certainly a dramatic story because she is risking her own life in order to rescue her uh, husband and son. The husband's name is Skunkins and the baby's name is Little Skunk, uh, so uh, that is part of the reason for the title.
1: How is this novel different from other books in the marketplace that are similar?
2: Uh, this uh, book is different from other novels in the marketplace because it, it combines a, <clears throat> a modern story of a uh, young woman and some of the struggles that the uh, First Nation people experienced living on the reservation uh, with the heritage of the, their 14th century forebears. I've looked at, I've read a lot of novels. Uh, native americans in, in preparation for this book and i have yet to find a novel that incorporates both of those uh... histories and the stresses and struggles that uh, first nation people have in both of those environments
1: the most challenging part of writing this book what would you say that it entailed
2: the most challenging Part of this book uh, entailed Heidi's under, understanding of what really killed her father. And that was, uh, it was difficult to write that part. It was difficult to pull the whole story together with the uh, historical aspect of the story, which is the major portion of the book. In fact, the uh, editors at iUniverse uh, had me write two extra chapters in order to uh, pull together uh, Heidi's relationship to her friends and the resolution of some of the conflicts that resulted because of her father's murder.
1: Is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel is important for people to know about your book?
2: Uh, I think uh, in the introduction it's important to understand that uh, I first developed strong friendships with uh, Ojibwe people when my father was a circuit preacher, and I would go with him uh, when he would preach at the reservation church. And uh, the first thing that I remember as a five-year-old child was that we, after the service. Uh, We would be having coffee and treats, and I was uh, playing with the um, Ojibwe boys, and uh, they were picking these flies off the screen, and they said, these are fish flies. And I said, why is that? And they said, well, taste one. So I did, and it tasted like fish. And so that was my uh, initiation into developing some very strong relationships with First Nation people subsequently uh, we had uh, several families because of my father's relationship with the ojibwe that uh, would invite us uh, to sample uh, deer meat and bear meat and my favorite was this candy made from wild rice and maple syrup so our our neighbor in virginia minnesota taught me the recipe that's described in the book of caramelizing maple syrup and then popping the wild rice and adding the popped rice to the the caramelized maple syrup. Now, that candy was very important to the people because when they ate that candy, it was a celebration that they had survived the winter. And at least what we understand historically is most of the time when Ojibwe died, they died during the winter, often of starvation. So to eat that candy at the, at the wild rice har, um, harvest was a symbol of we're going to survive the winter because we've been given the wild rice
1: as a beautiful story. I hope you included the recipe in your book.
2: Um, that sounds, that sounds the like recipe like is going to be out. on my website. <laughs> it's not in the book. Well, you got to start somewhere. The difference is that I make it with butter, and the Ojibwe used uh, bear grease.
1: <laughs> I prefer the butter. Thank you so much. Yep. <laughs> well, we've been visiting with author Dr. Richard R. Roach and discussing what sounds like a fascinating read, a historical novel and history into the life of the Ojibwe First Nations tribes. The name of the book, again, is called Saving Skunk. Thank you, Dr. Roach, for visiting with us today. You're very welcome. It was a real honor to talk to you. And how can we get a copy of your book and tell us a little bit about your website as well?
2: Uh, The website
1: should be up in two weeks.
2: And the book is available from Amazon or Barnes & Noble.
1: Thank you. Again, the book is titled, Saving Skunk, the author, Dr. Richard R. Roach. Thank you for sharing this intriguing story with us today. You're very welcome. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse Publications, this is J. Douglas Barker.
3: Yes, why don't you look at the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
4: Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4-3 Central on Toginet.com.
0: to i Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
5: The title of the book, The Seven Sages, and the author is Patricia Ann Dye, and Patricia joins us now on i and Patricia joins us now on I-Universe Radio from New Zealand. Hello, Patricia. Hi. Great to have you with us. Uh, We're going to learn a lot of this incredible journey you have been on for a lifetime and accomplished many things. Let me read what you've written about uh, your book. You say, many world legends suggest that at any given time, seven sages walk the earth, tasked with the responsibility to anchor wisdom on behalf of humanity. Each one stands as the personification of a different rung of human consciousness. Together, they represent humanity's innate ability to save itself or doom itself. Well, this is uh, quite a, uh, sounds like an epic in many ways, Uh, quite an incredible uh, challenge that you put before yourself to write something like this, but I guess... In many ways, you were prepared, and we'll find out why as you tell us about your background, Patricia, and all the things you've done, what you've learned.
3: Uh, well, I, I had a fairly uh, dysfunctional childhood, um, and um, I, but I was always interested in sort of getting my head, getting 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 around uh, the things that were really dogging me. And when I was in my early 20s, I had what I suppose was near enough to, a, to a, a nervous breakdown. I mean, there's lots of things come under that banner, but I certainly hit a crisis. And, um, I mean, this was all quite a long time ago, but I remember reading a book uh, by Meister Eckhart. I think he's the 13th or 14th century uh, Christian theologian. And uh, he said something about that he was a yay-saying. He was a yay-saying philosopher. And I thought, that's what I want. I want to be able to say yes, first to myself and then to life. So that has been, that was the sort of, almost like a marker or a, or a distinguishable point from which I began. It's like, because I felt I was living in a forest of no's. Yeah, no, no, you're not a good person. No, life is shitty, no. Um, and suddenly here was a thing up in lights that said, it is possible. It is possible. And so I was a young mum and, uh, I, you know, I was struggling with all sorts of things apart from myself. But that, that's where I set out from, basically, in the most distinct sense of the word. Uh, before that I was of groping. Yeah, so um, I did all sorts of courses and, and um, uh, I was very, very big on uh, poetry. I used to um, get, um, I can remember one, uh, I think it was Arthur Hugh Cloth, he said, and it goes. Say not the struggle nought avail us the labour and the wounds are vain. The enemy thinks not nor faileth, and as things have been, they will remain. And and I, I, I was got got to put all these memorise so many of these things, uh, and but I used to pin them up around on the curtains and things, just to remind me that life could be a lot better. And uh, so I went. Um, you know, I brought up four children, um, I, and then the marriage broke up, and that was a pretty critical time. And um, I, at that point, I, I did learn to meditate, and, uh, and then I did then up with yoga. And I would say that's probably what saved my life, because I was pretty well struggling. I was out of the energy. I was uh, bruised, mm, I was bruised, and I was battered. Uh, but some part of me just hung on. Maybe like, maybe like Robert Bruce and the Spider. I don't know. But um, <laughs> at the time, it, 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 was a, it was it is an epic drama. If you're going to move from darkness into light, that, that is going to be such a fantastic journey that um, is beyond anything that you can sort of achieve or do out in the outer world. Those, those inner struggles can be so seriously intense that um, they become the, the getting through um, a lonely valley or, or over a high mountain. Uh, maybe the, the biggest thing that's happening in your life um, at any moment. And you can be functioning in the world, uh, you'll be smiling your way through life or, you know, going going through it and doing these things. But on the inside, there's this this sort of, it's, it's not really a conflict uh, and it's not a war. It's it's a sort of a pushing through a dark cloud or, or uh, an entanglement that has held you in script for so long, and and so you're on the inside. Now, one of the the poets, um, I think it was Lala, the Kashmiri poet, and she said, I seem to be here, but really, I'm walking in the jasmine garden. Well, you know, it's not always a jasmine garden that you're walking in, but there's something happening on the inside that is warning or advising you. I know that Socrates was very much into this sort of mode of thinking that he felt he was a, um, his daemon, D A E M O N, was sort of like a warning voice, and a warning or advisory voice saying, yeah, don't do that or do this. And, and you get used to that. You get used to relying on that, that inner prompt. Yeah. So here I am. <laughs> Right, and those
5: those inner promptings uh, took you to Peru to study with shamans. That must have been a life changing experience.
3: Yeah, and with Patch Adams to Russia, um, you know, to do clowning, and um, all all over the place. And um, I'm I'm very grateful for that uh, because it's it sort of has taught me. It's led me through. Uh, from a very dark place almost perhaps like the you know the prince going through the to, to find the sleeping beauty and and you're you're kind of struggling to get through and you don't dare give up and then there are times when that inner you know, prompt says um time to just let go you know go down to the mall <laughs> 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 A nice go and buy yourself a nice dress. <laughs> so it's 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 a magic voice. It's a magic inner faculty, uh, but it's it's very reliable and it's very funny. Yeah, so it can be funny. So, well, tell
5: us about these seven sages again. This is a fictional book, uh, but at yeah, the same time, you feel yeah. like I guess you're part of each one of these seven sages.
3: Well, it was only on reflection after I'd written it and I thought, Oh, hello, these are these are actually me, but in much more perfected form. I'm not perfect, I'm a long way off perfect, but I am happy and I have found my place in the sun. Uh, so the seven sages, each one of them does in some sense represent a facet of me, but in a, in a much more advanced form. Yeah.
5: So, give us uh, just uh, list them for us the seven sages, and maybe tell us a little bit about each one.
3: Um, I must say I've I've kind of come to love them because they they developed personalities. So, um, Earth Whisperer, of course, is the he understands the voices of the earth. He understands the pain and the pleasures of the planet, and he is a poet and he's a geologist. Um, so he is hes almost he's sort of like a Viking in a way, because he is an adventurer, um, but he does love the earth, and he knows how to love it, and he wants to share his love and his appreciation of the earth with other people, so they will be inspired. Um, then then there's Leela, and um, it was quite shocking going through these because I never knew what was coming up until I actually confronted a stage, and Leela was... Um, perhaps qualified as a a rude girl in a way, because uh, she was a a dancer and a a wild kind of lover. Uh, Reminded me a bit of um, Clarissa Pincola Estes, you know, Women Who Run With The Wolves. Um, And she couldn't be bothered with ideas and questions and um, that sort of thing, uh, ideologies. Um, She just felt that as people, really understood the message of the dance then they would sort of somehow bring dance in some, into their lives um, and uh, they would find joy and meaning through that. So that was a bit hard going for me as the, the interviewer, the interpreter, because quite often she'd just turn her back on me and walk away and just say, oh, <laughs> you know, and she'd, she'd be watching the light dancing on the on the wall outside or something like that. But I came to love and appreciate her in a huge way um, because I thought she had a sanity that is missing in the world, in a a word-bound world. Uh, She had a kind of sanity there that I I came to love. So that when I moved on to the next sage, who was Solomon, I was quite shocked because I had always felt that uh, sagacity, uh, wisdom was tied in somehow with poverty. And it actually isn't. It's, um, you can be as rich as Croesus, but it's what you perhaps do with your money how you spend it um, and how you earn it I suppose um, that decides whether you're a wise person or not and so Solomon um, is Jewish and because the Jews have a great part to play in, in world uh, well-being and, and perhaps the, uh, the doom bet as well if they make the wrong choices but he was, he was a, um, a man who worked with equations I felt. Um, he understood that, for instance, when he, he learned to ski, he worked out in advance what the equation was as far as balance was concerned. So he was very clever and uh, understood technology extremely well and used it well and understood the needs of the world But went about it in a in a very professional and business-like way. Um, he was perhaps the hardest one to get to grips with because I'm not commercial but I love doing that I just love doing it because I looked at the, the Jewish texts quite a bit and uh, found joy in them uh, now the next one was uh, Philomel and uh, she's been a, a she's a Buddhist nun and a doctor and uh, she understood the nature of Immaculate loving she knew how to love people in a way that perhaps people didn't even notice they were being loved but she had a great she has a great healing presence and um, so uh, she was, I, I felt her, she was, a, she was a very warm sort of presence and uh, with each stage that I, I went to, I, there was always some impact on me, sometimes a, a really shocking one uh, and other times it was like oh, I just love being in this aura, I love this energy around me and when she hugged me I just felt as though um, heaven had arrived just about, she was, she was such a just a, a beautiful but nondescript person. She was a bird of modest plumage, you could say, but um, she she had this tremendous aura about her that uh, the perceptive eye would pick up. Uh, So then there was Dutta, Dutta Treya, and um, he was a crazy wisdom adept, and that's quite good for this age, actually. People like Patch Adams, who is a really good clown, and you've got clown doctors and people like that, and often, you know, a really good humour is very healing. And I had experience of that when I was in Russia with Patch. And, uh, but he had a family, uh, too. He had uh, three children. And this was a very good opportunity for me to bring in the wisdom of children because they have a profound intelligence which is often uh, spoilt by, by cultural conditioning as, as they grow up. is kind of confined or corralled, uh, put in a box. And uh, But his children were quite delightful. So I learned then... Um, about the wisdom of children and my own inner child and and what had been lacking and how I had sold her short. Uh, And so there were lots of fun things happened with Dattatreya. Dattatreya is the name of one of the original um, holy souls in the uh, Hindi tradition. Uh, So then from there um, we went on to uh, Marianina and uh, she was an international lawyer but Kind of unworldly, which means that she couldn't really relate, or the world couldn't really relate to her, because the world likes a bit familiarity in some sense. And so, she actually used me as a kind of medium, so that when I went to to interview her, she would she ended up interviewing me, and she kept turning the tables all the time, all the time. And uh, so, again, I learned a lot about myself, but I did learn about. Uh, perhaps a different approach to life, too, um, something that went beyond well, well outside the box. And what was interesting with her too was that when I gave her the seven questions, uh, she went away and she wrote seven stories, a story for each question.
2: <laughs>
3: because she didn't get, she didn't put a deal in questions; she built in in answers that they were answers that perhaps were hard to understand. And um, we know that the great teachers. Uh, always taught in stories anyway. you know you think of Christ and, and the parables. Mm-hmm. I mean that's how he, he got over these these profound um, ineffable truths to people uh, Think by telling them stories and that's why they understood. so so that's stage number six and then stage number seven um, I go in as the interviewer and I think um, by then I kind of understand and this is remember i'm a, I'm, I'm a fictional character too. But then I understand that I'm here to on this on the planet at this point in time to to um, get over and inspire people to understand uh, that they are profoundly beautiful they are they're, they're a magic we are a magic people and we need to discover that magic so I go into with sage stephen and I think this could be a professor this could be somebody very learned and maybe we'll be on a par and you know and I will' we'll have these these very deep conversations Uh, not I go in there and uh, the first thing I think is it's like a community and it's kind of ordinary and I can't see anybody who looks like a sage and I say to to somebody I'm looking for uh," just excuse me I just took a a cup of a slip out of my cup of tea Um, (laughs) I'm looking for somebody that um, you know I've got an appointment to see and they said oh you mean Fred and I thought, Fred. Anyway, it <laughs> turns out that Fred doesn't speak, which makes it almost impossible for me uh, to deal with him. Um, so uh, he, but he's a potter as well, and I see all these beautiful pots he's made, and they're quite magic. And I can I stroke them, and I think, well, this is you know maybe I'm in the wrong place, but I'll make the most of it. Uh, but anyway, what he does is he gets me to make my own pot. And I am absolutely appalled. But I go ahead, I mean this is all done in few pa- quite a few pages, I go ahead, I make the pot, and I come to, beca- I, I start to become very very sort of simple, and I, I don't go into a lot of thought, I just think, why am I embarked on this silly course? But this is just so lovely, just to be here, playing with the earth, and, and just making up these little, little vessels, and... And uh, so I become very childlike. And of course, there you've got um, the idea of um, unless you become a little child
2: right. you, know,
3: you can't go into the kingdom of heaven. And of course, but I don't realize this. I'm just playing with this earth. And anyway, so I make this pot and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in love with it in a way because it has brought me to a very simple sanity. And uh, so then they take the pot away and, and uh, they, you know, because I'm in this community and uh, Fred still doesn't talk, he just monitors what I'm doing and smiles occasionally and, and so I just get on with it, but the, somebody takes the pot away and I'm, I'm absolutely heartbroken and I, I begin to cry and I cry for all the things that I've lost so it's not just taking the pot away, that's a symbol of, of a greater loss And but this is part of the process and I understand this process quite well that part of the uh, cleaning up process that allows us to become wise and flowing beings is the removal of the old stuff, the old patterns, the old energies, the old pockets of darkness that we have somehow got built into our bodies, maybe from, you know, way back there, uh, early childhood, maybe even before. Um, so that, that is the cleansing process. Uh, and I don't understand it at the time. I just can't stop crying. Um, and then they give me back the pot eventually. And by the time I get the pot back, I am, I've settled down and I'm clear, I'm flowing, I'm not expecting anything in particular, I'm just there. And so the pot has to go into the kiln and they've uh, let me decorate it up and put little gold bits on it and, and it's been a lot of fun. So it goes as it goes with the kiln, I'm just watching it go in and I'm thinking, oh my God, will it break? Will it be able to stand the heat? And, um, I'm looking, and Fred is there and by then I've called him... I've gone through names with him because I have to give each one a name. So for a start he was Fred, then he was the Potter, and then he was Hamsa, which is uh, the, um, the swan. I won't sort of go into the, the symbolism of that. But um, So he's, he's actually just looking, as he looks at me, uh, just as the, the Potter's going to the kiln, I get this tremendous, almost like a Pentecostal experience. It's almost like a living fire just rushes through my body. And this is, mm. this is a fact, this is, uh, you know, the Darshan with the saints, with the, the great teachers, look at you and you experience uh, a transformation of your energy. So this is what happens. And I, but I had to be ready, prepared for that. When I came to the, this community, I was too full of my own importance. And that had to go. And I just had to become like a little vessel. So anyway the pot comes out and, and, and it looks beautiful and somebody says oh, it looks like a holy grail and I think, yeah, that's that's actually nice. But I'm very aware then that I'm just the vessel, I'm not the life force itself. But I can hold, if I am empty, uh, if I am open, if I am spacious, uh, then the life force uh, will come in and this mysterious force, which we call the life or the spirit, will actually use me the way it wants to. And so it sort of ends pretty well on that note. Uh, and I just because I don't I don't preach, um, I don't proselytize, um, I thought it was perhaps worth sharing with the world as something that people might, um, you know, just get a few clues from and enjoy. You always like to feel that what you write isn't going to be too too stuffy or, you know, right. you big words or something. Yeah. So there we are. Well,
5: well, Patricia and Di, we've been listening to incredible imagination, incredible amount of wisdom, incredible amount of life experiences and truth. That's what I'm hearing from you, Patricia. Uh, Tell us how to get your book, The Seven Sages. Sages. Uh,
3: You'll get it from um, um, our universe, or you'll get it from, you can get it online anywhere you can get it from Barnes & Noble, you can get it from Amazon, uh, depending, you know, I know it's in in New Zealand, online, it's not in the bookstores, but I'm hoping it will eventually get there. Um, I think if you just go into Google and find my Mm -hmm. name, you'll actually find lots of, lots of uh, references to uh, the Sages and and the Chronicles, the the World Tree as well, which is the previous book, yeah. So it's available. Well, thank you so much. (laughs)
5: Thank you, Patricia, yeah. for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
3: Thank you so much for the opportunity, Steve. So well.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back
4: right after these messages. Get ready to laugh along with This Little Parent stayed Home with Ali Lopreit.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book,
5: Healing the Wound from My Daughter's Suicide Grief Translated into Words. The author is Lois Severson, and Lois joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Lois. Hello, Steve. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, it's hard to say, put into words what we feel, uh, what you've had to go through with this. Uh, we certainly uh, pray for you and uh, acknowledge this great tragic event in your family's life. And, and yet, as we've talked already, uh, you know that uh, she is alive in another state, don't you? In a different kind of uh, yeah. reality. Yeah. Life after life, as they say. As your subtitle says, Greek translated into words, so after this tragedy, you talk about one's identity changes, and so we're going to talk about that, but before we get into the the book, in in specifically, and your words about going through all this, take us back, uh, take us back before the suicide, and life at the Severson home, and, you know, were there any signs about Patty and what eventually happened when she was 26?
6: Well, the earliest signs that I could go back to when I was trying to reminisce about her youth and writing about that in one of the chapters in the book was uh, there was an incident when she was in seventh grade when she was terribly anxious at night and couldn't go to sleep because she had let a good friend borrow her, um, her composition for the day because that girl had done her assignment. And then she realized that the next day when she was going to have to publicly give her assignment, it would look as though she was the one that had copied. So she couldn't go to sleep at night until about 10 o'clock at night. I had to call that teacher and explain it so that the next day they could work it out. But when I looked back at that event, it was an excessive kind of anxiety she had. And that basically was what showed up later in college, sometimes when she would have to take very important exams. She would get that excessive anxiety. She just referred to it often when she talked to me about it, that it was a general anxiety problem, and she didn't think it was any major psychological thing that she had to work on. However, um, in 2001, when she had to she had to make the decision to get out of physical therapy because she discovered as she was going along and almost finished with her physical therapy studies that you did not get to work with the patients. Insurance companies had changed the picture so much in Wisconsin that you as a physical therapist always did the diagnosis and told the assistants what kind of therapy they should give the patient. And that really disappointed her because she wanted to work with people. And because it kind of disillusioned her and because she had gone four years already to a very expensive university, a private one, Marquette, in Milwaukee, I think she was suddenly very, very concerned that we would be very upset because she did 50% of the tuition on her scholarships and things and working, and we did 50%. Well, at the time that she wanted to tell us about this, she got so depressed about it that her older sister had to bring her out to our home and discuss it with us. Well, my husband and I were very open about it, and we told her about how we had changed careers a couple times, each of us, that this was not out of the ordinary, and that in the younger generation, they probably would have to change more often because of how technology changes everything. So I said, hey, We're not upset about this at all. And my husband explained to him how. Um, before his retirement, he had experienced some panic attacks just the last 14 months of working. So he said, Don't, you know, you'll be able to handle it. You can work through it. And then uh, that evening, and this is something that I had not told my husband at the time or Patty's older sister. Uh, that evening, both of the girls stayed overnight, and Patty couldn't sleep during the night. I could hear her upstairs in the bedroom above us. And she, I just thought she's so rest, restless, I should go up there and help calm her down and, and see if she can relax to go to sleep. <clears throat> I met her at the top of the stairway. And she, we grabbed each other's arms in the dark, and she said to me, you know, I thought that after I told you and Dad about this that everything would be okay and it would be just like something dropped off my shoulders. But she said it didn't. She said, I have no will to live. And that, that wow. almost made me shudder. It almost made me shudder. It, it just really scared me. And I, I really think my inside fear of that
3: right.
6: was because we we as kids <clears throat> in our generation, it was, <clears throat> you didn't talk about suicide. You didn't have thoughts like this. You only thought about living. We were taught that suicide was a sin, et cetera, You shouldn't do it. But... I'll talk about that later, um, that it is not a sin. And my reaction to her was that I almost had to release my arms a little bit from Patty when she said this to me in the dark because I was afraid I was going to tremble a little bit. So I kind of gave a little bit of a release but still kind of kept my arms there. And I just said, well, why don't you go use the bathroom because that's what you got up for. And then I'll see if I can find something in the Bible that might calm us down and help you get to sleep. And the ironical thing about that night, that that is the only time in my life when I sat there with Patty on the bed and just tried at random to find passages that would work, it is the only time that did not work. Otherwise, when I had this difficulty during the night, I could always find the right one. Patty herself had a journal in which she wrote about things from Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah that had calmed her down when she was at college. That it helped her. And ever since then, I have no lack of finding exactly what I need in Scripture to help me. But that night, where was it? I just, I, I still can't believe that. And uh, the only thing I regret about that night is that I didn't tell her often enough to pray and to just pray with her uh, to teach her how to do this to calm herself down. Although, from our own living together as she grew up, she saw how I did that because there were times that were tense when we were traveling. One time we were going up a mountain to go skiing out in Colorado. It was terribly dangerous. And I just kept praying the Our Father out loud as my husband drove very calmly and slowly up that mountain. And the kids chimed in with me eventually. But from experiences like that, I think she knew that that's how I handled my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh but I should have demonstrated that more that night. However, after that experience, Patty herself said, I-, I believe I have to see a psychologist because this is way out of the realm of how I've ever felt about anything. And so she and, did.
5: And, uh, excuse me, uh, how, how old was she then and how uh, when did this happen before the terrible okay. event? How, it how happened much time? Four,
6: it happened four years before she actually was a victim of suicide. Okay. Uh, her her uh, suicide was in June, on June 22nd of 2005. And this event happened on the night of September 14th of 2001. And it, it also had happened right after 9-11, and she was upset about that. I, I think that also made her feel very uh, depressed, uh, that national event uh, of 9-11 in New York. Uh, so this was like three days after that had happened. Anyway, uh, she did see, uh, and I put this in the book in the chapter that's called Contributing Factors. I I list the medications he put her on. One was a medication that was calming for anxiety. It was rather short-term. The other one was a longer-term one that you really had to take for about two weeks in order to have it be effective. And I think that was to cover any overall depression that might accompany anxiety. Something I've learned since this event happened in our family is, uh, by my reading is that uh, many people who have this uh, anxiety that gets very peaked at times and becomes a panic attack, eventually it wears them down to a point of depression because they get discouraged with themselves that they are not handling this and they keep thinking other people don't experience this, why do I get this? Uh, riled up about something this hysterical, about something that others do not get upset about. And I I have elements in the book that show that some research now shows that there are some actual physical things in the body that can cause this for the people that have such extraordinary panic attacks. At Mm. any rate, these medications she took at the time did help her very much, and she got over that transition then, For about a year with having therapy with it, uh, where she made a transition into uh, going to a different university, to UW-Milwaukee, where they had an excellent uh, accelerated nursing program, where she could get, uh, in about a year and a half study, she got all her necessary nursing courses done to be a registered nurse. And the only reason this worked in such a short period of time is she had such a good background from Marquette. Right therapy studies. She had had all the anatomy classes. She had dissected a cadaver, you know, so she did not have to retake those kinds of courses. And of course, coming from Marquette, which has a great reputation, UW accepted all those courses. So did I cover that well enough for you?
5: Very, very uh, good. In the time we have have left, and I don't think for this uh, interview to go into the details of the event, uh, I would like to have you tell us about what tools of grieving helped you through the process. Uh, what, right, yeah. the, what, were, what were the things, and, and we just have about uh, oh, three, three and a half minutes okay. left. Um, give it,
6: give well, it, I'll make this short. Then sure, I'll try to summarize this, because there were many, many things. And that is something that I want people in the public to know that it's worth buying the book, even if you don't have a suicide, because there is a lot of grieving material here. Uh, because I show very much my own grieving journey. First of all, I did a lot of journaling from the get-go, right away when it happened. I had one journal that I kept very emotional reactions and things I discovered emotionally. Uh, I wrote those in one book. And I had another journal in which I kept more inspirational ideas. When I'd read a really good quote that uplifted me and helped my thinking a lot, I kept that in a different journal for uplifting you know, on days you really needed to be uh, lifted up. And I did a lot of letter writing. Uh, You'll see that in the book. Our daughter, Jean, our oldest daughter, wrote us a letter thanking us for giving her Patty as a gift for 26 years. She wrote this to us two weeks after Patty's uh, transition. And uh, then I responded to those letters, and I put those in the book. Uh, We got tremendous support from other people within our community, at our church, in my Bible study that I was involved in. I had many, many one-on-one lunches with friends, uh, intimate, spiritual friends. And it was so nice to talk with them one-on-one because we could go over lots of grieving points. I had a chance to tell my story about Patty. I really had a chance to grieve out loud with those individuals. Uh, Lots of prayer was involved. Every morning, i try to start out with morning prayer meditation while I exercise. And I think the physical exercise, working with the meditation, this probably sounds absurd to people, how I do the two together. But the doing the meditation helps me take my mind off the physical uh, routine in case it's tiring me out too much. I don't seem to pay attention to that then because my mind is on the meditation. And I usually get started with that meditation by using some type of scripture reading from, from that day. And I guess that's where my spirituality enters in. I am a very spiritual-based person, and I think that background comes from my family. I had a mom that was very spiritual, and eight of us actually tried out in the religious life. I was number eight. Six of my sisters stayed in religious life as school sisters of St. Francis in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and two of us left. I left before perpetual vows because I figured it out that this wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. But I gained a wonderful education and a great spirituality base from that training. And then I also made use of many uh, grief seminars. Even though I didn't find that support groups helped me, I felt certain talks or seminars, especially ones by Jacqueline Oliveira in our Milwaukee area, are excellent. Uh, Gardening was a tremendous therapy for me, and I have a chapter in the book just on that on the psychotherapy of gardening for me. I saw so many analogies to our brokenness after Patty's transition in my gardening experience, and that helped me a whole lot to think, wow, this goes on all over in nature, in the plant world, in the animal world. It's just that with human beings when this cycle goes on, we are so much more emotional about it. Uh, So I hope in that light I've shown you that I have a faith background that helped me a lot And I guess the last thing I have to mention is creation awareness. That would be it.
5: In closing, give us just a brief, uh, your thoughts that suicide is not a sin.
6: Well, because I will be less professional at expressing this, I want to recommend people look up on Ron Rollheiser's uh, site. He writes for the Catholic Herald and the uh, St. Anthony Messenger. Uh, He has an article every year on suicide. So I went back to 1985 on the internet and I clipped out all these articles. And the two that helped me the most is when he said that suicide is not a sin in his subtitle, and then he said it is an illness. And he tells very compassionately about his own experiences with families that have experienced suicide, how this very definitely is a person that is ill and has a disease comparable to cancer or uh, heart attacks, that kind of thing. And the disease uh, eventually took their life, just the way some cancers and some heart attacks eventually take the life of a person. So he is excellent at expressing that idea. And being a Catholic priest, Catholics can believe him. Uh, So more than they will probably believe me, even though I have a Catholic background too. But I am so convinced of God's mercy. And just knowing how Patty lived her life and her own faith life, there is no way that I I believe she is totally with God in resurrection. I just totally do. And I've got three experiences in the book where she touched me very dramatically, that I know she is okay, and she's not in any kind of pain. She let me know that. And it was my desire, the night I was waiting for the police to come and tell us that she was dead, we figured out by that time, if they're coming to our house, she must be dead. So... I said in in my mind, in front of her graduation picture from high school, I said, Patty, I know your spirit is here. You have to let me know every day of my life that you're okay and that you're happy. And I think that is why I had those three dramatic things happen in the first five months after her transformation to the next life. And I'm very grateful to her for that, just immensely grateful. And with that, I have to say, grievers must believe that that love that you have with your loved ones is never That love is never severed. You still have that bond of love when they are in the next form of life. And so every day we continue to tell her we love her. She loves us. Uh, we know that she's our patty power, you know, ministering to us each day of our life. Does that help?
5: Very well said, Lois. All I can say is amen to everything you've said. And we've been listening to Lois Severson. She is the author of her book, Healing the Wound from My Daughter's Suicide. Lois, tell us how to get your book.
6: Well, right now, uh, the publishing company has it on Amazon.com. If you type in my name, Lois Severson, it automatically pops the book up so that you don't have to memorize the title. You just have to remember my name, Lois Severson. And then Amazon has it on sale for $10.95, the paperback. And I believe the hardcover book on Amazon is 1895. And you also can get it at Barnes and Noble's uh, bookstores. So that's a real easy, easy way to get it.
5: Thank you so much, Lois, for being with us on iUniverse Radio.:
6: Thank you. Thank you, Steve